Well, uh, if you haven't been with us, we're preaching our way through the book of Ruth, uh, like you heard with the kids. And today we have reached the grand finale. And I have some good news for you. It's a happy ending. Don't you love a happy ending to a story? It's a happy ending we have today for Ruth. And I just wanted to give you really quickly a little bit of context for where we are in the big picture of the Bible. So, way over here you've got the beginning, okay? And after the beginning, after a while you end up with Abraham uh, and then Moses and the Exodus. And then you get to Joshua who takes the people into the promised land. And the promised land, people of Israel start out in a time called the Judges. And that's where, that's where the book of Ruth is set. Time of the Judges. There's a whole lot more to come afterwards. But just so you know where we are, that's, um, that's where we're finding ourselves. And... What we've got then here in front of us is a 3,000-year-old story. And it's not just any old story. It's a a love story with a happy ending that's 3,000 years old. What could this possibly have to do with us? Well, stick with me and hopefully we'll find out. Um, Just to give you the story so far in a little bit more detail. Okay, so Naomi, who's Ruth's mother-in-law, goes to a foreign land, to the land of Moab, in a time of famine with her family. And they settle down there. And um, they've been there for a while. And so her sons marry Moabite women, but things go pear-shaped. And uh, the men die. The sons die. Um, the man Elimelech dies. And Naomi ends up heading back, back to Israel when she hears that there's food there again. And as she lands back in Israel, one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, chooses to go with her. And Ruth has been looking after Naomi. So Ruth gets back and she goes out to work in the fields, um, finding food for them. They're poor, uh, they're widows, they're alone. Ruth goes out into the fields, gathering grain behind people. And she finds herself in the fields of Boaz, who looks after her, makes sure there's extra grain. But then the harvest comes to an end. What's going to happen now? What are these widows going to do? The harvest comes to an end. Well, we heard last week, uh, about the bedroom scene, as it's affectionately known, um, where what happened next. So Ruth goes to Boaz uh, in his bedroom, effectively, on the threshing floor, and effectively makes a proposal to him. She says, rescue the family by marrying me, is effectively what she says. And Boaz is delighted, but there's a hitch. Someone else has first dibs on redeeming the family. Are you on the edge of your seat? How is this story going to carry on? Well, let's read and figure things out as we go. So if you've got a Bible, um, if you've got one of the church Bibles, we're on page 269. Uh, We're going to read Ruth chapter 4. If you don't have a church Bible, that's okay. You can listen to us uh, or read your own. But let's read a chunk uh, of Ruth chapter 4 and see what happens next. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he'd mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And Boaz took ten of the of the town, and he said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, do so. But if you're not, tell me, so I'll know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the lamb from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, oh, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel... For the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal 
and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced to the elders within all the people, today, you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Mahlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that the name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. We'll stop there. We'll pick up the rest a little bit later on. But I just want to say, what's going on here? Now, this was 3,000 years ago, to be fair, so we shouldn't expect it to be totally familiar. But there's a bunch of weird stuff going on, and I wanted to walk us through it. Okay? So the beginning of Ruth chapter 4, where's Boaz going? Boaz goes to the gate. What's the gate? Well, um, Bethlehem is one of these small country towns. It's 3,000 years ago, so there's no police. Uh, there's no courts. There's no judges, there's no lawyers. If you want to get something done, what you do is you go to the gate. That's where business happens, that's where law happens, that's where justice happens. So that's why Boaz is going, right? Boaz um, is straight to sorting things out and he grabs um, some tribal elders to help with him. That's how you make stuff stick. It's like you have some tribal elders around who say, totally, definitely, that's actually what happened. Done deal. And here comes the other family redeemer. Just in time, handy that. But then, what does it mean when it says, it says um, guardian redeemer in the, in the church Bibles and other Bibles, you'll have kinsman redeemer or redeemer or kinsman, other different words. What does it mean when it says that? Well, Israel um, had a bit of a funny way of thinking about their land. Um, the, 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 the land that Israel was taken into by God, um, their view and the, the view of their law was the land belonged to God, not to them. It never belonged to them. And um, they were just looking after it for him. So... Because it wasn't their land, it wasn't theirs to sell. So when you ran into trouble, if you ran up on hard times, what could you do in Israel? Well, you couldn't sell the land because it wasn't yours. But what you could do is you could, you could give it away for a bit, let somebody else farm it and make the money, but it had to come back to you. There were all these laws about how the land has to come back to God's people, has to come back um, to the family uh, that it belonged to. And also there was this thing about if you had sold your land, the rights to your land, if you sold that to somebody else, well, then, it was the duty of your wider family to help you get it back. It was their job to do what's called redeem, to redeem. And uh, obviously, you can see from what happens here, there's like a pecking order of who's meant to redeem. There's the, the, the number one guy, the close relative, who's meant to help you out of a hole and come and buy back your land first. And if he doesn't do it, other people in the family are meant to do it. So that means that the, the land doesn't get spread out. It doesn't go to different people. You can't sell it to other people. It's always in the family, uh, and it always ends up belonging to God. So, Redeemer, okay? The guy who's going to buy back the land. And then there's this twist, right? It looks like the other guy's going to take it. And this is bad news. Ruth made a proposition to Boaz. She wants her family to be rescued. Um, but... But, but what happens instead? The other guy says, I'll do it. I'll take it. Sure. I'm going to redeem that land. Look at me. Um, he says he's going to do that. Um, but there's the twist. Boaz adds at the last moment. Oh, uh, and if you take the land, uh, you'll need to marry Ruth, of course. Why would he need to marry Ruth if he buys the land? Well, like I said, families and land go together in Israel. Um, so... There's another set of laws that are about preserving families um, and about if, uh, if a husband dies without raising a son who's going to carry on the family line, somebody else from the family has to step up to give that husband children. So you've got two things working at once. Naomi's family at the moment looks like it's over, um, 
But that's not okay. The family has to continue and the land has to continue. So there are other laws. Now, they don't cover exactly what's happened here. What he, what's here is complex, right? You've got Naomi, who's a widow. She had children. Her children married. It's all very complicated. It doesn't say exactly what to do in that situation. But look at how the people responded. Does the other guy go, don't think so. I'm not taking that one. Do the others go, what are you on, Boaz? Not at all. It's obvious that this actually makes sense to them. It obviously is um, what they were expecting. There's no surprise. Nobody argues with it. So Boaz's conclusion is valid. Ruth has to go with the land, and she has to go with the land because the family's meant to carry on on the land. Now, why is the other guy surprised about this? Hasn't he been in Bethlehem all along? He was just walking in and out the gates. Doesn't Boaz himself, he says in, in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, All my fellow tensmen know that you're a worthy woman. So surely this guy knows that Ruth's kicking around. Um, he obviously assumed she wasn't part of the deal. What was he thinking? Well, maybe he was thinking that actually he'd marry Naomi, thank you very much, because she was the senior widow. And perhaps she was old enough that she wasn't going to have kids. So what's changed if it's Ruth? If it's Ruth, they're going to be kids. If it's kids, it's going to be inheritance. He won't get to keep the field. So what started out when he said, yeah, I'm definitely going to do the redeeming. It's me. I'm up for it. I'm here to save. What was he actually after? He was after the lamb for number one. Um, when it turns out that he's not going to be getting the lamb for number one, what does he say? Uh, oh, oh, uh, my inheritance? Um, no, it's going to damage my inheritance. You, you go ahead and do it. So um, that's why I think you'll find he's surprised and then backs away. But what's the deal with the sandals? That's, that's just weird old stuff, I think. That's just the way they did things. It does have some connections with some of the laws about keeping families going. So maybe it found its way into other things as well. But either way, Boaz here has carefully settled the matter. Right? He has bought um, or he's redeemed this land and he's acquired a wife into the bargain. Uh, and he's acquired the wife. Um, if you look down with me at... Um, yeah, at verse 10, he says, I've acquired the wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. So he's acquired a wife in order to keep the family line going on the land. That makes pretty good sense, right? Let's take a moment to think about what Boaz has done here then and what we can learn from him. So in three short chapters, Boaz has turned around Ruth uh, and Naomi's life. He's made a happy ending for them. See, he's He's rescued them from poverty uh, and destitution. That's what they had ahead of them as widows. He's rescued their inheritance for them. He's redeemed their land, which has obviously gone to somebody else. And he's rescued their family line from extinction. He's married Ruth with the purpose of having children and keeping the line going. But it's worth noticing while we're at it that um, Boaz took a big risk here. See, he embraced Ruth. And Ruth is a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's... um, from another nation who, let's say, aren't exactly Israel's best buddies. And uh, he put his reputation, he's one of the big guys in the town, a leading man. He puts his reputation on the line in order to rescue her. Now, he's taken this risk, but at the same time, it's worth noticing he's not been reckless about it. See, he knew quite a lot about Ruth before he did this, right? He knows she's stuck by her mother-in-law. She came back. He knows she went out into the fields and worked hard. He knows she got guts. She was in the bedroom with him last night. So, if we look at this, there's actually something more for us too. See, Boaz wanted a happy ending for Ruth from the beginning. If you look back at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, it says, When Boaz first runs into Ruth, see what he says. He says, May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings 
you've come to take refuge. He's praying. He's praying for her there that she'll be rewarded. And it's a nice picture that she comes and takes refuge under the wing of the Lord. Can you imagine that? It's kind of warm, fluffy, feathery, a bit tickly, but uh, quite, quite comfy in there. But now um, have a look at what Ruth asks Boaz to do on the threshing floor, okay? So chapter 3, verse 9. Um, Who are you? I'm your servant Ruth, she says. And what does she ask? Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a guardian redeemer of our family. What's the connection? Well, the... The word translated corner of garment is actually the word wing. It's exactly the same word. So when Boaz says, um, you know, the Lord, you come take refuge under the Lord's wing. Later on, what does Ruth say to him? She says, spread uh, your wing over me. That's what she says to him. Spread your wing over me. Now, wing and garment in the same word. Have you seen your children run around and flap things? They can do a quite good job, actually, of turning garments into wings. Imagine you've got one of those, um, you know, 3,000-year-old cloaks around you and you're running around. Then maybe it looks a bit like a wing. Wing and garment, same word. So, Boaz says, you come to take refuge under the Lord's wing. What does Ruth say? Spread your wing over me. What's going on? Well, Boaz is used to answer his own prayer for Ruth. And I wonder if this has something to say to all of us more generally, actually. I I think it does, because I haven't really figured out how prayer works, I have to confess. I've not been at this that long, but I really haven't figured out how prayer works. I've heard people say things, though, like, it doesn't change God when you pray, but one of the things it often does do is change you. And perhaps that's what we're seeing here, is, is Boaz actually being changed by his prayer. Can you imagine Boaz keeping praying the same thing for Ruth? The Lord, let's pray that the Lord will reward you for coming to take refuge. He keeps praying that the Lord will look after Ruth. He prays, will the Lord take care of you? And finally, he finds himself led to, in fact, be the one who takes care of her. Now, I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Have you ever been challenged or changed by your prayers? I wonder if that's something that actually should happen to all of us a bit more often. Do we ever find ourselves praying for the Lord to provide for someone? Well, maybe we're the one who should be thinking about giving. Or are we praying that the kingdom would advance when maybe actually it's our turn to speak the gospel to someone? Or are you busy praying for more workers to go out into the harvest because the fields are ripe? Let's get some people out there to see people saved when... Perhaps it's you who should be putting your hand to the plow. I wonder if it's more often than we think that we become changed by God's grace into the answer to our own prayers. just want us to seek God for a moment here. Is there something for you? Like, is there something you've been praying about which really you need to be doing something about instead? Now remember, there, 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 are, there are two characters at the gate, right? There's Boaz and there's the other guy. The nameless guy. Boaz, Boaz has, um, the NIV here says he calls him friend. If you look at the words underneath, what he really says is um, a certain one of a certain one or something really, really peculiar like that. The words are very unusual um, in, in the Hebrew. And most commentators agree the main reason it's done that way is just to avoid giving the guy a name. He's deliberately left nameless. It's best translated so-and-so. Come over here. Um, And uh, he doesn't have a name because he hasn't earned one. See, when he sees there's a price to pay, he hightails it out of there. He is self-centered in what he's looking for. Look what he complains about. It's my inheritance that's going to be damaged. 
It's my estate that's at risk. It's my security. It's my reputation. Put him next to Boaz. That's black and white contrast, isn't it? Boaz is here to rescue Ruth's family, to hold on to Ruth's land. He's going to see Naomi's family line continue. I don't want you to be the nameless one um, who steps back from doing something for selfish reasons. And I think, I find in myself, I am really good at covering up selfish reasons for not doing things in um, clever other answers. I say, well, I couldn't do that because uh, it would be imprudent to do that. I couldn't do that because I need to look after my own family and make sure we've got security there. But I wonder if sometimes we scratch the surface and dig underneath, we'll find that really a lot of the time what's holding us back from going is selfishness. So Boaz is the answer to his own prayer and he takes a risk in embracing that outsider and he gives Ruth a happy ending. But I think there's more for us to learn here as well. So I want to take a look at the story from um, Ruth's point of view with me. So I want to remember first, where has Ruth come from? She's a Moabite, right? Like Boaz keeps saying again and again, who is she? She's the Moabitess. Ruth's the Moabitess. It comes up over and over again. And who are these Moabites? Do you know who they are? Well, Israel first runs into them when they're on their big journey from Egypt through the desert into the Promised Land. It's where they first run into them. And it turns out that Moab is one of these places that's in the way. It's somewhere that Israel's going to have to go through to get to the Promised Land. And they ask, they say, can we go through? Listen, we won't do anything. We'll just walk through in a straight line. We won't touch anything. We won't take anything. We won't nick any of your stuff. Can we just go through? And what does Moab say? No. No way. In fact, it's worse than that. The king of Moab sends someone to curse Israel. He pays a guy money to say, go and curse those Israelites. And it gets worse still. So while um, Israel are camped alongside Moab, what happens next? Well, Numbers 25 tells a story about how the, the, the Israelite men get entangled with Moabite women. And they get drawn into Moab's religion, which is evil. And it causes trouble and plague and destruction for Israel. So Moab, entanglement with Moab, entanglement with Moabite women has brought Israel to destruction. Now, you remember that timeline where we are in the timeline? We're in the Judges. Um, what's going on in the Judges with Moab? Well, over and over again, Israel's directly at war with Moab. You know the great story of fat king Eglon? A Moabite king that Israel was at war with. Several times in Judges, um, Israel's plain at war. So, when you read Moabite, you've got to read enemy You've got to read enemy, and it's not even like an old dead thing. This is a live blood feud. These people do not get on with each other. Now, what was Naomi doing going into Moab in the first place? Well, I think that you're seeing her disobeying God and being unfaithful there. But now you've got this alien, this enemy in the gates. I mean, imagine this. Your son marries a banker. Or like a politician. These guys are enemies. But Ruth goes from this extreme end of enemy all the way to total Israelite insider. And it all starts when she puts her faith in God. Um, when she chooses to go back to Israel with Naomi. Um, I think if you go back to 1.16, Ruth 1.16, she has this really famous set of things she, Ruth says she'll do. And she says, your God will be my God. I think you can read that as her conversion speech, really. But let's look at where this story ends. Pick up the story at verse 11 with me and let's read about um, the response to Boaz's actions and what it says about where Ruth is. 
So in verse 11, then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now we'll pick up the rest in a minute. But uh, Ruth is embraced by the people. That's a stunning shock. It's amazing. And it's not like a reluctant arm's length acceptance. Well, if you've got to have this woman, if you really need this one, I guess we can probably just about have her in our town. That's not what they say. Their wish for Ruth is that the Lord make her like Rachel and Leah. Who are Rachel and Leah? These are the women of Israel. These are the mothers of the 12 children who became the 12 tribes. Like when you're looking for a woman to pick out in Israel, this is the queen. There's there's nowhere else to go after this. They're wishing that Ruth will become like their most exalted women. That's a remarkable statement of acceptance. And also see who's saying that. Um, In verse 11, the elders and all the people at the gate said, not just the, the leaders who are saying this, but everyone. And if you read the Hebrew, the words are the other way around, actually. It's all the people and the elders said this. And so there's a sort of groundswell of support. So you imagine, the gate's not a huge place. It's not an enormous space for them to be doing business. So Boaz is there and his ten elders and this nameless other guy. But a crowd must have gathered as the drama's going on. And here you finally see the crowd going, we'll take her. We'll take that Ruth. We want her to be one of ours. We want her to be right in the middle. Now, how did such a massive change happen? Well, I want us to notice it's not something Ruth did for herself. It wasn't something she could do for herself. She's a poor foreign widow. Now, sure, she did go back with Naomi. Sure, she went out and did the work. She even earned some respect for doing work in the fields. Sure, she was the one who went and approached Boaz. But she couldn't bring herself into Israel like this. She just couldn't do it. Notice she's a Moabite in the text. All the way. Even in Boaz's speech, she's still a Moabite. He says, um, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite. He's making the point to the other guy. But then when he says who he's taken, he says, today you're witnesses. I've taken Ruth the Moabite as my wife. She is a Moabite all the time until she's married. Until she's taken by Boaz and that's the end of it. It's done. Ruth's uh, connection to her redeemer is what finally makes her an Israelite. She's an enemy who's been redeemed. And then she gets this ultimate happy ending. She gets a child once she's unable to conceive. And I think we're definitely meant to notice here that God is directly involved in this. You don't see that much of God hands on in the book of Ruth. He's the two bookends, right? He ends the famine in chapter one, verse six. He provides the child. And chapter 4, verse 13, which carries on the line. So there's not much public action from God, but these two bookends show us he's in control of everything in between. Ruth has gone from widow to wife. She's gone from childless to parent. She's gone from enemy to Israelite. And so what? What what, what does this have to say to us? I want to tell you that just like Ruth, our story starts with us as outsiders, not insiders. 
We're foreigners, not natives. We're all starting from a place of being God's enemies, not his people. And I think you can see Ruth as a model for us in this of how it works and what happens. Now, hang on a minute, you might be thinking, enemy, isn't this a, a loving and kind and gracious God? Now, how does one of those loving, kind and gracious gods have enemies? How does that work? Well, Paul, one of Jesus' very earliest followers, he writes to one of the churches in, uh, in Colossae, he says, once you were alienated for God, from God, once you were enemies in your minds. And then he explains why the church were enemies. Because of your evil behavior. That's Colossians 1.21. Once you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Enemies of God. See, God is good and so God hates sin. Now, hate is a strong emotion, am I fair? Using that, well, that's how he's told us he feels about it. And, and sin, this little unpopular, old-fashioned word. That's doing what we shouldn't do. Not doing the things we should. And, and God hates both of them. I think it makes sense, actually. I don't think it's good to stand and watch and smile and twiddle your thumbs while bad stuff goes on. That's not good. Good is saying, this is bad stuff. I'm against it. That's what good is. So it, it, it's kind of right that God's an enemy of that. That God hates evil behavior. That makes sense. Good people ought to do that. But maybe you're thinking I've gone overboard in putting all of us as starting in this enemy corner over here. Maybe you're thinking that's a bit strong, really, because maybe what we've got is really there's, there's an enemy spot over here for the really bad guys. And then there's a crazy folk spot over here for the ones who come to church all the time and sell their lives there. And in the middle, there's a really big space where there's this demilitarized zone. Where there's this kind of no man's land where it's not really a big deal. You know, you're not actually God's enemy because you're not right over there at that end. But you're not one of those crazies over there either. And uh, I want to tell you, unfortunately, with God, there is no Switzerland. <laughs> it's really rather black and white with God. You're either an enemy or you're a friend. Um, the Bible tells us we all start out on the other guy's team. John, who's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he writes, if we claim to be without sin, without this doing wrong, without this lacking right, if we claim to be without that, we're just deceiving ourselves. We sin. And so we are enemies. And so the bad news is our story does start all the way over here with us as God's enemies. And that's a bad place to be. You don't want to be God's enemy, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And Ruth, I think, is a model for us in this. What does she do? What does Ruth do? Well, she does two things, I think, that are really important. She speaks words of faith. She says, your God will be my God. And she acts on them. She turns her back on Moab and Moabite ways and her people and her background and the way things are done. And she starts walking back towards Israel. She's coming with Naomi. I think it's really helpful for us as a picture of how we become a part of God's people. Because I think sometimes it's really quite hard to grasp what it is that gets you over the line. When you're on the edge of believing, what do you do to jump off that cliff and finally make it into a done deal? Like, how do you have this mysterious, evasive thing called faith? You just need to have faith. How do you practically have faith? What do you actually do? Ruth shows us. You say it, and then you act on it. 
Very practical, very simple. We turn the way, turn our backs on the way we used to do things, on our old home, and we start going somewhere else. And that's enough. That's where Ruth's ability to change things ends. Ruth can't make herself an Israelite. She can turn, she can say, she can walk, but she can't make herself an Israelite. That takes a redeemer, and we too have a redeemer. And just like Boaz is not going to rest until the job's done, our redeemer isn't going to rest until the job's done. He brings us all the way back, right into the middle of God's people. He does what we couldn't do. No matter how hard we tried, doesn't matter how many fields we gleaned, how many nice things we do, how often we walk around behind other people, we still need a redeemer to bring us into the people. And Jesus, just like Boaz, is willing to put his reputation on the line for us too, to bring us into his family. I wonder if there's anyone here who is ready to take that step of faith towards God today. Are you, are you actually ready to step off the cliff? Maybe you're standing right at the edge. See, I, I, I've actually been there. Uh, I've stood at the edge and I've looked down past my toes uh, and I've recognized that it's a long way down and if I step off, um, that's pretty serious. Um, don't want to tell you a lie. It's pretty serious. It's a big deal. But if that's you, I want to encourage you today. Do take that step. Don't waste your life peering over the edge. Remember where you are. It's not some safe DMZ. You're not in Switzerland where there's great health care and lovely mountains. You're an enemy. You're in enemy territory. And God is coming. So if you want to do something about that today, I'd encourage you to do it. And uh, if you want to talk to somebody about that, I'd encourage you to talk to someone about it. Come talk to me. Come and talk to one of the leaders here at the church after the service. Or if you just need someone to push you off the cliff, um, I'll be happy to push you off the cliff too if you want someone to push you off the cliff. Now, we all started as enemies. I keep putting enemies over here, don't I? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's nothing personal. We, we all started off as enemies like Ruth, okay? And we all can be redeemed. Share Ruth's happy ending. Through our Redeemer, Jesus. But there's more to be said about happy endings in Ruth too. You see, the, the biggest story arc of the whole book, where it begins and ends, is actually with Naomi. She's the character the story starts with. And when she first comes back, the women of the village, they hardly recognize her. Can this be Naomi? They say, appalled. Horrified. Is this really Naomi? And she's a bitter widow. She's angry at God. She says, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Let's pick the story up again and see where Naomi gets to, shall we? Let's read again. We'll read from verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and she cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the line, the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Tasty. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. 
See, Naomi's bitterness, Naomi's, the Lord has brought me back empty. Where does it end? Her emptiness is filled once more. Naomi has a son. Naomi has a son. It's Ruth's son. And there's more. The family line is um, spelled out for us. And where does it reach to? Well, it reaches to David. And who is David? David is Israel's greatest king. He's the summit of Israel. And we know that the line goes further, right? That line goes all the way to Jesus. Naomi has gone from empty to full. And her family line goes from extinction, dead end, widow, done, all the way to Jesus. So life simply couldn't get better. This is the ultimate happy ending. But where are we in this story? Where's our happy ending? What happened to the um, happy ever after once you're with Jesus thing? Seems to be a bit of a disconnect, doesn't there? Now, I don't know where you are today. Maybe things are working out for you. But I can tell you, they aren't working out for everyone. And um, they won't always work out for you. See, the world's a mess. Terrible things are going on all around us. And it's not just God's enemies. It's God's friends, too. There's, there's very little happy ever after in Syria. Or try talking to a Burmese Christian about happy endings. For that matter, take it up with Jesus' disciples. What happened to their happy endings? Pretty much every single one of them ended up dead in some unpleasant way. What about Stephen, the first deacon? How did it work for Stephen? He was sent to death right after. Not so much happy. And these are the stories of countless Christians down through the ages. I'm not saying there isn't any happy. I'm not saying there aren't any happy endings. But there aren't many people who could tell you Looking you straight in the face that they've really arrived at their happy ending. There aren't many people who could tell you that. Doesn't this seem like a bit of a problem for all the lessons we're learning from Ruth? Doesn't it undermine all this talk about being redeemed? What is the use of being redeemed? If you're still empty, if you're still, if you're still barren or alone or hopeless, have you really been redeemed at all? Well, I want to tell you what good it is. Um, see, there is a happy ending. There is a happy ending for everyone who's redeemed by Jesus. Every single one. There's no exceptions. There's no exclusions. There's no fine print. Everyone is in Jesus. is guaranteed this happy ending. We just might have to wait a while to see it. It's just around the bend. Just over the horizon. It's coming up just after the break. But it is there. You see, Jesus, our Redeemer, lives. He didn't stay dead. He did get his happy ending. And that day when he rose again, the Bible talks about it as the first fruits. The first fruits, the first one to break into this true, happy, forever after. The happy ending that's ahead of all of us. Now you might say, that's just a cop out. Pie in the sky when you die. Always just over the horizon. And it's always just over the horizon because it's not real. It does sound like that. But anyone who's trying to sell you a happy now just isn't reading the same book. 
every bit of your experience, doesn't it tell you it's true? It doesn't work like that. Following Jesus is not a one-way ticket to a happy ever after with a window seat. It's quite the opposite. Peter, who's another of Jesus' disciples, he tells Christians, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. It's not much of a sales pitch, is it? At the same time, I don't want to jump you all the way to the other end saying, it really is all pie in the sky and by and by, and there's nothing whatsoever in the middle. That's not true either. Following Jesus is not a ticket to an immediate happy life. It doesn't happen today. But it is the start of a journey. A journey with a destination. Now, Naomi has had a painful journey, okay? It hasn't been happy all the way along for her either. Jesus had a painful journey. He walked through his earthly life. We are on a journey. We're not at the final destination. And there are encouragements along the way. Not been left alone. Not been left with nothing at all. Now, think back through Naomi's story. Are there any things in Naomi's story that she could have caused her to hope along the way? Are there anything? Yeah, there are quite a few, actually. See, Ruth decides to go with her. That's an encouragement right there. Now, they get back just at the time of the harvest. Now, if you're poor and you've got no food, that's handy right there. Where does Ruth go? Whose fields? Boaz, a kinsman, a kind kinsman who's going to help her. Ruth goes to the threshing floor. Is it going to work out? Proposals received. Yes. Boaz is at the gate. Where's the other guy? Just walking past. There are encouragements all the way through. And um, this just tells us that we're on the road. Not the final destination, but we're on the road. Uh, I want to ask you today, if you're having a sucky time, if it's not working out, can you take a minute to go and look for encouragements? Because I think it's something we don't often do. Um, and it's a, it's a powerful something. Often we don't see them until we go looking for them, but they are there. Spend a minute walking backwards through your last week. Have you seen God at work? Have you seen things that tell you you're on a road to somewhere? When another thing goes wrong, don't let it make you think you're on the wrong road. Again, look back, see where you've been, see the signposts along the way. It's an easy mistake to make when something goes wrong. See, we were just about to uh, go on holiday the other day. We were going to Centre Parks. Remember been to Centre Parks? It's a great spot. Full up of water. And um, we were seriously on our last preparations when um, one of our boys manages to crack his head open. And uh, so we're off to the emergency room rather than packing. And uh, there we are, spending um, hours playing Angry Birds, waiting for somebody to help. They finally come and help. And do you know what they say? I'm like, can we just skip this? Is it all right? It doesn't look that bad. It's pretty much not bleeding anymore. Can we just brush over it? They're like, no, I'm afraid we're going to have to glue it. Well, if you glue it, can you glue it in a way that's kind of waterproof, perhaps? Because you know Centre Parks is full up of water. No, sorry, we can't do that. No, it's going to be the stuff that's going to mean you can't go in water. Life's gone wrong. Like, how fickle am I? Life's gone wrong, um, you know. Uh, but um, we make a big mistake if we only think we're redeemed when things are going our way. Things don't go our way all the time. But there are markers along the way. So I want you to do one last thing with me. Zoom out. Zoom all the way out on this book. What do you see? What's the big picture of Ruth? What's the main thing? The main thing you see in Ruth are these bookends of God at work, okay? God is in control. 
This is God's story. It's God's story because it's God's line that he's protecting. It's God's line because it leads to Jesus. Who's really in charge? Who's making sure that the story works out? God is in charge. God is unfolding his giant rescue plan that stretches from one end of the Bible to the other. And it's utterly unstoppable. So the question for us as we follow Jesus is whether we really trust our Redeemer to get the job done. Whether we really think God is in charge of the big story or not. Because most likely your happy ending is going to remain just around the corner for the rest of your life. Can you keep going? Can you keep walking all the way to the end? I want to encourage you to use the encouragements along the way to keep you going. And you might have to look for them a little bit. You might have to look pretty hard. But they are there. Now, just like Naomi said, um, Boaz, their Redeemer, wasn't going to rest until it's done. And the glorious news for us is that our Redeemer is now resting. And why is our Redeemer resting now? He's resting because it's done. Jesus, you see, finished the job at the cross. Do you remember the last words he said there? He said, it is finished. Our Redeemer has delivered a happy ending for us. It's going to take a while to get there. 